to be able to give joy away like that. Uh, In this series in Philippians, we've been talking about uh, receiving joy as a choice uh, that we make. And so by focusing on the grace we have in Jesus and and letting that define us, we can rejoice in any circumstance, even in hardship. This choice to rejoice empowers us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Uh, This choice makes us like-minded in the church and it becomes a safeguard for our lives. Uh, This morning, I'd like to focus on the fact that joy is not only something that we choose to receive, but it's also something that we can choose uh, to give away. Uh, We'll be in Philippians uh, chapter 3 to look at that. But we can be the type of person who gives joy to others by standing firm in the Lord. Uh, We see this in our passage this morning, uh, beginning in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be uh, beginning uh, in verse 17. Uh, So if you have your Bible with uh, with you, turn to Philippians chapter 3. If you have your uh, Bible on a phone or tablet, you can open up there as well. Uh, But we'll be studying Philippians chapter uh, 3, beginning in verse 17 and going uh, through to uh, Philippians 4, verse 1. Paul begins this uh, section of his letter to the Philippians by saying this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and will tell you, uh, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, 
and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let me open in prayer, and then we'll uh, study this together. Heavenly Father, we invite your uh, presence uh, among us. Uh, We love you for uh, who you are, the the God who speaks uh, with us, who opens us uh, up to having a relationship with you, for uh, letting us know you through your word and through uh, your son, Jesus Christ, uh, God. Uh, We yearn to to understand uh, you and know you. uh, more uh, to have your mind. Uh, God, I pray that, that you speak to us all um, through your word this morning, uh, that you teach our hearts, that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we make, that you make us uh, receptive to your word. Uh, God, we're dependent and we long uh, to hear from you. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you in advance. Amen. So in the final verse, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Paul referred to the Philippian church as his joy and his crown. The Philippians made uh, Paul feel joyful. Uh, they made him feel rewarded, like, like uh, he was, uh, that they were his prize. And one of Paul's sources of joy throughout this letter is the church's ability to stand firm in the Lord. And our current verse here says, My brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord. And in the opening verses of this letter in Philippians chapter 1, Verses 3 through 11, Paul says, I thank God for you, remembering you in my prayers with joy. And why joy? Paul explains, because of your partnership in the gospel from day one. Because I know God is going to complete the good work he started in you. Because uh, you are fellow partakers in God's grace. Because God's helping you to love each other in deeper and greater ways. And because you're going to be pure and blameless on the final day when we all see Jesus in glory. It's right for me to feel this way about you. To hold you in my heart. And to yearn for you with all the same affection as Jesus Christ. So the Philippians are an example of what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. And it gave the apostle great joy because of that. In Philippians 2.2, Paul asked them to complete that joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And that mind, he later explains in verse 5, is the mind of the Lord who humbled himself and gave himself for the church. And so Paul's command in in verse 4.1 to stand firm in the Lord is the main thrust of this morning passage, even though it comes at the end. And it seems to be a handle that carries all of the other instruction that appears in the letter. The Philippians stood firm in the Lord, and it gave Paul joy. And Paul wanted them to keep standing firm and to complete that joy. Which leads us to the general principle this morning. People who stand firm in the Lord give joy to others. People who stand firm in the Lord give joy to others. They become givers of joy. They become agents of joy, if you will. They aren't just objects of joy, receivers of joy, but agents of joy. And by the way, the opposite is also true. People who don't stand firm in the Lord suck joy away from others. And so here's the big idea this morning. We can stand firm in the Lord by doing three things. 
by choosing discipleship, by guarding our kinship, and by living from our Christ-centered citizenship. We can stand firm in the Lord, and thus as one of the products of that standing firm, we can give joy to others. So let's talk about the first one. Uh, We can stand firm in the Lord by choosing discipleship. Choosing discipleship. And we see this in Philippians 3.17, which says this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so Paul invited the Philippians to act like and become like him as a pattern for discipleship. And so Paul begins by, um, by calling them brothers uh, or adelphoi. And his audience would have received this as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And so he begins by calling out to them, putting special emphasis on the intimate family bond that they have uh, shared through faith in Jesus Christ. And he grabs their attention to what comes next, which is this. He says, join in imitating me or become co-imitators of me. He invites them into a discipleship friendship where they grow by watching and becoming like him. And the verb puts more stress on who they are, more so than on what they're doing. It's more about who they are than what they do. And the word co-imitator used here comes from a verb which has a basic meaning, to do what you see someone else doing. And this word has given rise to the English words mimic and imitate. And watching other people and imitating what they do is one of the main ways that people learn how to develop uh, skills. And in fact, it's the way uh, that Charlotte, uh, uh, mine and Sherry's daughter, is learning how to brush her teeth. So I doubt that Charlotte understands the finer points of dental hygiene, (laughs) but she's watching her mom and she's doing what her mom does. And so she's uh, receiving the same benefits uh, of that. Uh, And later on, she'll understand why. And so imitating others and, and doing what you see others doing is one of the main ways that people learn. And so Paul uses it as a beautiful picture of discipleship. Now, the word imitate is full of a very beautiful and rich meaning, especially in classical Greek thought, which is the context into which this uh, letter is written. Uh, Imitate had huge implications for human culture, the arts, and ethics. Uh, The Greek uh, believed that culture flourished when people began watching animals and mimicking them and learning from them. For example, uh, they believed that that, that people learned the skill of, of weaving and sewing by watching spiders as they spun their webs. They thought the arts ought to mimic life in reality. Uh, Things like drawing and and painting and sculpture, theater, uh, literature, and especially poetry uh, were supposed to hold up a mirror to reality in an attempt to show and explain what's really going on. And at the turn of the last century, modern thought turned things around and said life imitates art, (laughs) which allowed for art to become literally anything that the artist wanted it to be. And now we have art. Art that looks like 
bad children's drawing that has orange juice and coffee spilled all over it. Um, but I'm just digressing into my own personal beef with contemporary art, so we'll move on from that. Um, but the Greeks also uh, believed that the earth, uh, earthly realm had no idea how to behave unless they had uh, an example to look at, uh, and particularly the heavenly realm. They had to, to learn from the heavenly realm to learn how to act by imitating uh, what they saw. And of course, uh, oftentimes the Greek gods behaved pretty badly. Uh, they were known for being unpredictable, prone to fits of rage and acting out of drunken foolishness. The Greeks had to seek out good examples to, uh, to follow if they wanted to develop ethically. Then, of course, there's the accurate biblical model, which says in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, that we were created in the image of God, who is perfect in every way. And so we can look to him, imitate him, and become good just like him. And so Paul asked the Philippians to become co-imitators of him. Because they needed examples to follow uh, so they could know how to be like Jesus. And, and we Christians living today, we have it pretty good. Um, we have 2,000 years of church history uh, of examples to follow. We can, we can look back in church history and we have all these spiritual giants that we can look up to. Men and women uh, who, who struggled well with God. Uh, who learned from their mistakes. Who were gripped by Jesus. And we have the privilege and the luxury of sitting on their shoulders and following their examples as we seek to follow God. Now, the Philippians did not have that luxury. This whole Jesus movement was in its infancy. And so they didn't have a context for what it looked like to live as a follower of Jesus. Um, so Paul confidently set himself before them as an example to follow. Uh, and he did this from a position, uh, position of apostolic authority. Paul says, here. Watch what I do. Mimic me. Imitate me. Study the way that I think through things. Pay attention uh, to the things I say and how I say them. Uh, look at what I do, my actions, my kindness, my dependence on Jesus, my willingness to suffer, uh, my passion for the gospel. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But for Paul, it was never about making the church more like himself, but more like Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me. As I am of Jesus. And, uh, and, and Paul is following the same mindset here. All the action, actions that Paul wants the Philippians uh, to mimic flows from his attitude that pursues the mind of Christ. And we see that attitude flow through the verses uh, leading up to today's passage. And beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see this. We see Paul, the man who rejoices in the Lord, who glories in Christ. We see the man who puts no confidence in the flesh, but forsakes everything in pursuit of knowing Christ more, who considers uh, uh, everything that might be considered gain as a stinking pile in comparison to, to gaining Jesus, um, whose righteousness is not his own, but comes through faith alone, who identifies with Jesus uh, in life, sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that he might know the power of the resurrection, uh, becoming like him in his death. That, uh, and so he's the man who never looks back. He's always straining forward uh, for the goal, for the prize of his calling in Jesus. And that's who we imitate. Yes, it's Paul. But ultimately, it's Jesus because Paul is imitating Jesus. And Paul says, this is what it looks like. Look to me. Follow me. Become like me. And you'll become like Jesus because I'm following Jesus. But don't stop with me. 
Paul says in the second half of verse 17, he says, Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, uh, Paul and Timothy, the writers of this letter. In other words, I'm not the only follower of Jesus you should be looking up to. Uh, Look to the people who have the mind of Christ, uh, leaders in your church, for example. Other people in your congregations who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Look to other uh, traveling preachers who come through town, who come through Philippi, who also live and teach and preach the genuine gospel, Paul says. I think Paul recognized that as an apostle, he had a special responsibility to be an example for the church. And being an apostle also gave him the authority to tell people to follow his example. But at the end of the day, he knew he wasn't perfect. He admitted that in Philippians 3, verses 12 and 13, he said, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I haven't gotten it all together yet, but I am always pushing forward. And because I'm not perfect, make sure you surround yourself with a cloud of examples to follow. Pick the best traits from lots of Christians and make them a part of your lives. And there's a real danger to making one person, one Christian, uh, the sole pattern for your own Christian life. Eventually, they'll fall short, they'll let you down, and it could be very damaging uh, for your faith, especially if you set them up on a pedestal. So we should balance that out with a cloud of faithful followers of Jesus who spur us on as we follow Jesus. But ultimately, we need to imitate the original. We need to uh, mimic the man, Jesus Christ himself. Another big concept about imitating uh, in Greek thought is that the imitation could never fully capture the glory of the original. It always fell short. For example, a painting could never really capture real life. The theater could never fully depict real life. And poetry could never adequately convey emotion. It's like when I was in high school and I would go on these student trips to, to major cities... There was always these street vendors uh, selling fake Oakley sunglasses for $10. My friends and I called them Folkleys or fake Oakleys. We knew they were just imitations, but we bought them anyway. And within a week, the paint would chip off of them and they would be completely broken within a month because they were just imitations. They weren't as good as the original. Uh, Or some people will think that they found a great deal on a Rolex watch on Craigslist and they'll buy it only to find that the cheap metal that it's been made out of turns their skin green in two weeks because it's not as good as the original. It's an imitation. And Paul says, um, uh, you know, as God's image bears, we're never going to perfectly uh, reflect the glory of God. Um, As Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians 13, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now we see but a poor reflection of God is in a mirror, Then we shall see him face to face. Then I shall know him fully, even as I am fully known by him. So right now we're all imperfect imitations of Jesus. And so if we're only imitating other imitators of Jesus, then we're going to become a poor imitation ourselves. Uh, So be careful to look straight at the example that we have in Jesus. Uh, Look to the original. Get into the word of God. Learn continually uh, straight from the source. So this verse invites us to choose discipleship. Uh, It it asks us all, do you have a few discipleship friendships in your life? Do you have people in your life you can pattern your Christian life after? Are you surrounding yourself with people who spur you on in your Christian walk? 
And also ask, are you fulfilling that role for somebody else? Are you confidently setting yourself up as an example for other people to follow? Are you passing on a legacy of discipleship? Some people never get plugged into discipleship friendships because they don't have a practical context uh, for how to, to just really live that out. And so I'd like to take a minute or two just to provide one, one among many uh, of ways to think of discipleship so that you guys can do it uh, in the friendships that you guys have already uh, and the mentoring friendships that you have. Uh, this is just one way of thinking about it. A discipleship friendship can be described as one of those combination locks that you can set your own custom combination, one of the ones that looks like this. And so each rung on the combination represents uh, one of the four essential things that goes into a discipleship friendship. All four of them need to be there in order for it to be be discipleship. And those things um, are uh, Bible study, uh, prayer, sacrificial love, and time together. Those four things. And so uh, you can set uh, your custom discipleship combination with your uh, friend uh, when you sit down and decide how much of those four things you want to have in your friendship. Uh, One being just a little bit and nine being uh, a lot of that particular thing. Uh, So, for example, maybe you want Bible study to be a highlight of your discipleship uh, relationship. And so you guys set it at a seven together, which means that you uh, memorize full passages of the Bible Uh, and keep each other accountable that way. Uh, Or maybe you guys want to focus on other things in your discipleship relationship, so you uh, set it a little bit lower at at like a two, and you guys simply read through a Bible plan together. Um, Maybe you want a medium amount of prayer in your friendship, so you set it at a five. Uh, You guys seek out uh, other people during the week, uh, get prayer requests from them, and then when you come together for discipleship time, you lift those items up in prayer. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you guys both realize that you uh, both need to grow in sacrificial love, and so you set it really low at the beginning, at a one, and you simply own God's love for you so that you're freed to love others. Um, and maybe you want time together to be a real highlight of your discipleship, uh, friendship. And so you set that as a nine. And so this means you spend a lot of time together, maybe even plan a few vacations and road trips as a family together so that the friendship, uh, discipleship friendship that you're nurturing overflows to other people in your life. Uh, By the way, uh, the 110 group that I'm a part of, uh, we did this. We made time together a big priority. We actually went on vacation together in February. We went on a cruise uh, and got to spend tons of time together, and it was an awesome discipleship um, experience. But at any rate, uh, true, genuine discipleship is a friendship that includes these four things. uh, Bible study, prayer, sacrificial love, and time together. And so if it would be helpful for you um, in your relationships that already exist, sit down with a friend and set your custom custom combination for the discipleship friendship that you want to have. And to help you guys set your uh, combination, I've included in all of the bulletins just a little tool that would maybe give you a guide for what some of those activities would look like. So for each of the four rungs, uh, there's just an example activity for what would be a one in prayer uh, and so on and so forth. So you guys can look at that. It's just a tool if you would find it helpful. If not, uh, that's fine as well. But you can stand firm in the Lord by choosing discipleship. And beyond that, it will release you uh, to give joy to others. So choosing discipleship is the first thing. We can also stand firm in the Lord by guarding our kinship. Guarding our kinship. And we see this in verses 18 and 19, where Paul says this. 
For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In these verses, Paul warns the Philippians not to be influenced by those who walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. And kinship is a term uh, that I borrowed from anthropology that describes the people and relationships that influence us the most. A kinship refers to people like uh, parents, siblings, relatives, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Uh, these are the people that have the greatest influence on us. And kinship is relevant uh, because Paul points out that there are people who influence us positively and people who influence us negatively. In verse 17, the phrase, those who walk according to our example, is contrasted with the phrase in verse 18, the many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so there's two ways that people walk. He says to keep your eyes on the ones who walk according to our example. Look to them. Let them influence you. But he warns about the men who walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. The implication is don't look at them. Don't let them influence you. This is a warning to guard our kinship or to be careful about the people we allow to influence us. Paul talks about the way these two groups of people walk. And walk is a pretty common figure of speech used throughout the Bible uh, to talk about people's behavior or conduct. How do you walk? What direction are you going in life? The way that uh, that you're going with your actions and your behavior uh, reveals what's truly going on in your heart and will ultimately dictate where you end up. And in terms of this passage, you'll either end up in destruction or in transformation. Paul warns the Philippian church about a group of people whose actions and behaviors reveal them to be enemies of the cross of Christ. And he listed out what behaviors the Philippians should be on the lookout for and guard against. First, he warns the people, uh, uh, warns about people whose gods are their bellies. Uh, In other words, uh, uh, they're ruled by their appetite for worldly or earthly things. He's not just talking about hunger or thirst. He's talking about the overall desires uh, of the heart. Uh, these people were set against God and against his kingdom agenda. They were ruled by them. He also warns about this in Romans chapter 16, uh, verses 17 through 18. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord uh, Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Avoid them. Just as a general rule, steer clear of people who try to quench your desire and pursuit of God and try to set you up with a competing agenda against God's. Second, Paul warns us about people who glory in their shame. This is another way of saying, uh, watch out for people uh, who do things they ought to be ashamed about, and yet the perspective of their heart is so twisted uh, that instead of crying in shame about what they've done, they actually brag about it. They delight in things that are shameful. And there aren't a lot of specifics given in this verse to, to let us know exactly what behavior is being talked about. Uh, But some say that it's referring to people who find ways to justify their sinful behavior by applying some kind of misguided religious justification for it. Uh, It's talking about people who take advantage of God's grace um, and live a life of sinful liberty. It's the attitude that, that Paul warns about in Romans 6, 1 through 4, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. God's grace doesn't give us the freedom to sin. God's grace gives us the freedom to live in newness of life. And so don't let someone who's rationalizing their sin away get you veered off the path, the right path. Finally, Paul warns against people whose minds are set on earthly things. And this is synonymous with the first phrase that warns against people whose gods are their bellies. He fills in the word picture with a little more meaning. He says, look out for people whose desires and focuses are caught up in worldly things. And so be careful about putting people in a position in your life to influence you negatively. He warns us that their end is destruction in verse 19. And this is an allusion to the eternal punishment and separation from God in hell that awaits anyone who doesn't trust Jesus. Because Paul talks about their destruction, a lot of thought has gone into who uh, Paul is talking about when he talks about the enemies of the cross of Christ. And some think it's the pagan neighbors alluded to in Philippians 1.28, the opponents and unbelievers who are harassing the church. Other think it's the dogs, the Judaizers in Philippians 3.2 who are attempting the church to put confidence in their actions instead of in Christ. Um, uh, still others think it's the third group who are only alluded to in these verses uh, called antinomians. Uh, these were a group of people who denied the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And so they used that as an excuse uh, to embrace a life of sinful liberty. And so we've already looked at some reasons, examples in our passage that would lead people to believe that. But a lot of people look at Paul's tears in verse 18. Um, he said, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. Paul often reserved his tears for those who were close to the church. In Acts 20, as he's wrapping up his ministry in Ephesus, uh, Paul was worried about false teachers who would come in after him and cause the disciples to stray. This is what Paul said in Acts 20, verse 31. He says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I think there's reason to believe that the many who were the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3.18 were very close to the Philippian church. Biblical scholar Gordon Fee, along with many others, believe that it's referring to people who from their own point of view are professing Christians, but the fruit of their lives reveal the inner reality, that in fact they're not saved, that in fact they are headed towards destruction. There's an implicit warning here, and it invites us to pause and reflect over our own personal lives. What does my walk reveal? What does the fruit of my life reveal about what's going on in my heart? Talk is cheap. Anybody can claim to be a Christian, but what does my conduct and behavior really say about where I'm headed? The warning has come from the stage several times, and I'll repeat it again this morning. If our faith hasn't changed us, it probably hasn't saved us. So if this line of reflection leads you to a place of personal concern, I'd ask you to talk to somebody. You have got to get this figured out. This is way too important to let it go another day. That's the implicit warning here. But the explicit warning is to guard your, uh, guard your kinship. Be careful about the people who have influence over you. Now listen, 
And none of us have total control of our kinship circles. Uh, There are people in our kinship circle that we get to choose, and there are people in our kinship circle that we don't get to choose. We don't get to pick our parents or our siblings, uh, our relatives, our in-laws. In many cases, we don't get to pick our coworkers or even our bosses. We do, however, get to pick our best friend. We get to pick our support network, our business partners, uh, and the person we date, get engaged to, and eventually marry. And so in the areas where we do have a choice, we need to guard our kinship. We need to be very choosy about whom we allow to influence us. 2 Corinthians 6.14 puts it this way, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now this does not mean to do away with anyone in your life who's an unbeliever. All right, this does not mean to seclude ourselves from people who don't believe or follow God. And if we do not have anyone in our life uh, who's far away from God, then we're probably omitting the divine command in our lives to do the work of an evangelist, and we need to rethink that. What it does mean is that in the kinship relationships that we do have control over, we don't enter into partnership or fellowship with people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. That means we don't enter into a relationship with someone where we give them the power to negatively influence us and erode our faith base. Marriage and dating is the classic example here, but I think it goes beyond that uh, to things like best friends, support networks, business partners, and things of that nature. In the areas of our kinship circle uh, circle where we don't have a choice, such as with parents, uh, siblings, coworkers, bosses, Uh, We need to embrace the likeness factor. The likeness factor means that we become like the people we spend the most time with. And many of us come from families, uh, or we work with people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And we have no control over that. But we acknowledge that they have the power to influence us, and so we plan for that. So when that family reunion is coming up, Oh, we know we have to go on that business trip and we're going to be surrounded by these people uh, for a long period of time. We get centered spiritually in advance. Um, We let the grace and love of God inflow into our lives. We spiritually charge ourselves uh, through the natural channels of worshiping God, uh, of spending time in our discipleship friendships. We spiritually charge so that we can overflow uh, the love and grace of God into the lives of others so that we're influencing them and not the other way around. That's how we guard our kinship. We guard against people influencing us and eroding our faith base. This allows us to stand firm in the Lord and it releases us uh, to give joy to others. And finally, we can stand firm in the Lord by living out Christ-centered citizenship living out our Christ-centered citizenship. And we see that in verses 20 and 21. But our our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body uh, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul begins this section by saying, but our citizenship is in heaven. And this is in contrast to the closing verses, uh, verse 19, where the enemies of the cross of Christ have minds set on earthly things. In contrast, our our citizenship, and thus our focus, is in heaven. Philippi was a settlement 
of the Roman Empire. And so the Philippians enjoyed uh, the status of being born as Roman citizens. Uh, but Paul appointed them to their heart's true allegiance. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, the, uh, the realm of King Jesus. The Philippian church formed a small community of heaven citizens within the Roman outpost. Their heavenly focus probably set them apart uh, as a subculture from the greater culture that they are living in the middle of. They were kind of like Chinatown or Little Italy in uh, Chicago, only they were Little Heaven. They were Heaven Town in the middle of Philippi. Uh, they were living differently with their Christ centered culture. Christ centered citizenship is marked by the sense of awaiting a Savior. As Paul continues in verse 20. And Savior is one of the titles uh, that the Caesars of Rome like to go by. Uh, But here, Savior refers to the true king. uh, Savior uh, and king, King Jesus. And here we begin to feel the tension uh, that we find in Paul's already not yet theology. Yes, Jesus is already Savior. Yes, he's already died and rose again and ascended into heaven. But we still await him as Savior until he comes back, until we get to see him face to face, until he takes a seat on his throne. And he hasn't done that yet. And so until then, we live in the tension. And that tension feels like waiting. Waiting with hopeful expectation. And so this is what it means to live from our Christ-centered citizenship. It means to have the mind of Christ. Paul's been talking about this all along, and he opens it up, this whole subject, with the Philippians to him about Jesus near the beginning of the letter, and he continues to refer back to that hymn over and over and over again throughout the letter. He said, have this mind among yourself. This is a culture. This is the citizenship. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mind of Christ. That's what Christ-centered citizenship looks like. That's what it looked like for Paul. That's why Paul talks about identifying with Jesus in his suffering and in his death. In Philippians 3.10, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and becoming like him in his death. And that's what our culture should look like now. And it's tough. And none of us do it perfectly. But by God's grace, we can identify with Jesus in life And in his death, we can live a crucified lifestyle. And it allows us to pursue church unity, uh, to make ourselves obedient to God, even if it means following Jesus in our deaths, uh, to embrace servanthood, and and to empty ourselves. Why all this stuff? Because of what comes next in the Philippians to him. Therefore God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is one. Jesus is king. And he's been resurrected and is with his Father in glory. And just a small part of that is that he has a new glorified body. And Paul knew he was coming after Jesus in terms of the resurrection. 
I want to know Christ, Paul said, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Why? Because that by any means possible, I may attain, uh, I may attain your resurrection from the dead. He knew he was getting a glorified body. He knew that he was entering into glory with Jesus. And it's the same for us too. Look back at verse 21, where our passage continues. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As citizens of heaven, we await a Savior. We identify with Jesus in his life. We identify with Jesus in his death so that we can identify with him in his glory. That's the end game of being a citizen of heaven. That's the hopeful expectation. We follow Jesus into glory, into resurrection, into receiving a new body. And we can get hung up in the weeds about uh, the eschatology and when uh, the resurrection will happen. And we can get hung up on how our bodies will be the same and how our bodies will be different. Um, The short is our bodies will be glorified and and our bodies will be physical. They'll be better. And I just got back from bike trip last night. And I'm really looking forward to having a body that doesn't get tired or sore or sick. And I'm going to get mine one day. And so are you if you believe in Jesus. But what it comes down to is this. Are you living from your Christ-centered citizenship? And I'm confident that many of you guys are in your true joy. Do you have a network of discipleship friendships where you guys are spurring each other on in your walk with Jesus? Are you guarding your heart uh, from those who would influence you uh, negatively? Um, Are you living a life that's marked with waiting for a savior? Is your life marked with the wounds of Christ? That's what it means to be a citizen. And does your hopeful expectation for what's been promised to you make those wounds worth it? By God's grace, we can do that. And will do that in much, much more in ever-increasing manner. And so my brothers and sisters, whom I love, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. We can stand firm in the Lord by choosing discipleship, by guarding our kinship, and by living out of our Christ-centered citizenship. And one very small product of that is that that frees us to be agents of joy, to give joy away. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for um, uh, this church family who's gathered together to to worship together, um, uh, uh, to focus on you, uh, to become more like you. Um, God, we thank you for your word. Um, God, we we pray that your love and grace will flow into our lives. Uh, that we can be agents of joy, that we can stand firm in the Lord, um, and that we can be your joy and crown. We love you. We thank you. Amen.